Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to True Restoration. Here is your host. I'm your host, John Thompson, and I replace Nicholas Wansbutter, who's done a phenomenal job hosting these shows. You may remember me being interviewed for the True Restoration flagship show, Confessions of a Novus Ordo Seminarian. As I do this show, Nicholas will continue doing other works for Restoration Radio. On this show, I'm joined by Father Bernard Utley, OSB, a traditional Benedictine priest who serves Our Lady of Victory Catholic Church in London, Ontario. Restoration Radio is pleased to present the spiritual life free of charge to our listeners by the generous sponsorship of the Catholic Mission in Canada. If you wish to receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit our website, restorationradionetwork.com. Go to the member area on the menu bar to find details on becoming a member. Alternatively, you can purchase individual episodes on the same website just by searching for them and following the links. Restoration Radio episodes are syndicated on iTunes and Stitcher. If you're listening to our content through either of these, please be sure to leave ratings and reviews. This will make it easier for our content to be found by those who are searching for truly Catholic programming. This episode is part two of a series we started last November. Today, we're going to be discussing vocal prayer. Father? Yes, I would like to start this show with a prayer. We'll pray the Our Father and the Hail Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Before we begin the topic for today's episode, I just wanted to say that for this season, I'm going to try and cut the shows more or less in half. So this simply means that it will end up being half the content each month, but we'll just have to break down each subject into smaller sections. And therefore, like a series like this one on prayer, it will end up being a lot more episodes than I had originally intended, but that's fine because there's really no hurry. With that said, today's show will just be about vocal prayer, and then the next episode will be about meditation, or more properly speaking, mental prayer, and then we'll get into contemplation. In the last episode of the last season, I talked about prayer in general, its necessity, its efficacy or, or power, the prayer of petition, and I also did introduce the two main types of prayer, vocal prayer and mental prayer. However, I wanted to go a little deeper into each type of prayer. There really is much more that can be said about vocal prayer, especially in regard to practical advice about how to go about our vocal prayers in such a way as to promote progress in our prayer life and progress in our spiritual life in general. And that is what we want or should want in the spiritual life, to make progress in our union with God, to grow in our love for God. And prayer is really the primary road that we have to progress. We should not be satisfied with where we are in our prayer life, the status quo. We should want to improve. And if you don't want to grow in your prayer life, then that implies you're not really interested in real sanctity, not really interested in developing a truly 
close union with our divine Lord. And as I said before, progress in prayer is not about quantity, but quality, not about multiplicity, but a deeper unity in your spiritual life. And often this becomes simplicity. Progress in prayer is really progress and simplicity in our prayer. It becomes more and more interior, sincere and fervent. So vocal prayer is something that we will never totally leave behind. But as one progresses in the spiritual life, we should develop our mental prayer, our interior prayer and and, and aim for contemplation. So what is vocal prayer? Vocal prayer is simply prayer that we vocalize in some way usually from a pre-written or thought-out formula. What I mean by vocalize is reciting the prayer out loud, even in a whisper, or at least articulating it with the mouth, even though sound is not heard. And this is important because for most indulgence prayers, we need at least to articulate the prayer with our mouth. We have to move our mouth although it doesn't apply to very short prayers. These can be purely mental, and we'll talk about that again later. Now, the the reason for vocal prayer is that we're composite creatures. Human beings are composed of a material body and a spiritual soul, a rational soul. With vocal prayer, we're not only directing the faculties of our mind and our will towards God, but using a physical body as well to externalize this prayer. And this is the reason for other bodily postures and prayer, kneeling and and genuflections and other ceremonies. The body becomes a part of the prayer as an instrument of the soul. It's the whole man. God made us body and soul. We're not angels. We're not pure spirits. And so it's fitting that both elements of our being give praise and glory to God. We're really the only creatures in the physical universe that is able to consciously think of God and love him and praise him. We're really the voice of the universe, as it were. Material creatures, including the animals, they give objective glory to God by simply existing according to the nature that God gave them. But rational beings, rational animals as we are, we have free will and an intellect to recognize the creator's beauty and goodness in creation and freely give glory to God. And this is done externally by vocal prayer. Now, all public prayer of the church is vocal prayer because it is external. The official prayer of the church is in its public worship of God or its veneration of the saints is in the form of vocal prayer because it is an externally objective type of prayer, which everyone is able to do. You don't have to be a great saint or a great contemplative to recite a prayer. In regard to the church's official prayer, which is the mass or the divine office, or even in regard to the sacraments, the essential value of the prayer is not so much in the individual's own interior devotion, but that one is speaking in the name of the church while following a formula or using that external ritual. It is, in a sense, the church speaking, the bride of Christ speaking to God, and Uh, We're just the instruments. If the public prayer of the church were mental prayer, there would be no proof that it was done properly. It would be more of a subjective thing, and that would be counterproductive to the whole concept of the public prayer of the church as a visible community, a visible church. So a vocal prayer is, is more objective in that sense. It was said, 
the words were recited properly, and that is finished. So as far as the public prayer of the church goes. Now, this does not mean that the priest or the religious who prays the mass or offers the mass or prays the office, that their interior devotion doesn't matter. It does matter, and it will obtain greater graces for themselves or for others. But as regards their public duty in the name of the church, it's complete when they say the right words or perform the correct ceremonies. Now, this is true of public prayer, but it's not so much true in one's personal, private spiritual life. Things operate a little bit differently. Here, what is essential is not just saying the right words and performing externally the right ceremony, but what is the foundation of the value of one's private prayer is really one's interior attention and devotion and fervor. Here, I, I want to introduce a distinction in theology, which is summed up in two Latin phrases, ex opere operato and ex opere operantes. And this distinction will be very applicable and helpful in understanding and distinguishing many things in the spiritual life, something that we often forget. These two phrases, they're very important, ex opere operato and ex opere operantes. Now, it might sound like just technical jargon, but I'll explain what it means. Ex opere operato is from the Latin, which translates from the work worked, from the work worked. It's a term used in describing the primary effect of a sacrament to indicate that the grace is conferred in virtue of the sensible sign instituted by Christ for this end, so that if the sacrament is validly confected, its effect is objectively infallible and independent of the merits or virtues of the minister or the recipient. And this doesn't mean that the disposition doesn't affect things. It does. For if you have a proper disposition in receiving a sacrament, it's going to increase the fruits of that sacrament. Sometimes it's necessary for the validity of a sacrament for example, the sacrament of penance, you at least have to have contrition. If you had no contrition, you didn't care, you just said the words, then the sacrament would be invalid. If you didn't have a firm purpose of amendment and avoiding serious sin, then the, the sacrament would be invalid in that case. And we need the proper disposition as adults to receive really the actual graces connected with the sacraments. Ex opere operantes is from the Latin, which means from the work of the worker. Now, this is a term used in describing the effects of prayers, good works, sacred signs, or ceremonies, and indicating that the effect depends upon the sanctity of the minister or the dispositions of the subject. So that's the other side of the coin. You have from the work worked, ex opere operato, for example, let's say, hypothetically speaking, this certain priest is in the state of mortal sin, but he's, he offers mass in that state. Now, as long as he says the right words, that's a valid mass. And it would be objectively pleasing to God because it is the public worship of the church. The sacramental effect would be affected in the words of consecration, despite the interior disposition of that priest. Now, he himself would not gain graces from that mass, but it would still be a valid mass. The same would be true of baptism. And we'll explain here that, ex opere operantes, that those who are in the state of grace, when they pray fervently or do something meritorious, supernaturally speaking, they will obtain 
an increase of sanctifying grace, but they receive this divine gift by virtue of their faith and their holiness and their, their own personal love. And this is different than the seven sacraments. The seven sacraments confer grace of their own power, though, of course, through the merits of Christ. And the sacraments infallibly impart their supernatural fruits to all who place no obstacle in their way. So the sacraments produce their effects in our soul, ex opere operato. That is, the direct cause of the sacramental effect is not the disposition of the one who administers it or the one who receives it, but the sacramental rite itself. So by virtue of the sacramental rite itself, it produces a certain amount of grace in us, independently of our degree of fervor or lack of fervor. Now, the measure of grace will depend on our interior disposition, but it, it's not produced by that disposition. It's not the primary cause of it. It is the right itself. So when you go to communion, for example, as long as you're in this state of grace, you're going to receive some grace. Now, if you went to Holy Communion with great fervor, great love of God, a great yearning, a great desire to receive our Lord, you're going to receive more grace than someone who just goes willy-nilly, just goes up. Now, disposition is very important, but in a sacrament, it is primarily that the rite, that the ceremony, that the words are done correctly. So the spiritual fruit of a sacrament will be increased or diminished in proportion to the degree of fervor present in the recipient. But it's the sacraments themselves that produce the grace. Does that make sense, John? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. For, for sacraments, I mean, I, I'm familiar with the fact that, you know, if the, even the priest's uh, intention, he doesn't necessarily have to believe in what he's doing as long as he just intends right. to do what the church does. Yeah. And then it's valid. So, right. Yeah. Right. Now, now, this doesn't make the sacraments magical rites. We, we believe it's, it's through the power of Christ working through them, but... They are God's instruments, and we have to cooperate, but it's really God working. Now, our dispositions are important because it's almost like opening the windows, letting the fresh air into the room, but it doesn't produce the air. It just allows more grace to penetrate. So that's the importance of a disposition. But for prayers, your private prayers, your good works, the sacramentals of the church, any sacred sign or ceremony, they, they're not sacraments. We only have seven sacraments in the church. Everything else in our faith really operates ex opere operantes, that it's really important and crucial that you have proper disposition. To use a sacramental properly, you use it devoutly and fervently, and it's not a magical item that has power of itself, but that God grants graces through those instruments but only because of your disposition, only because of your disposition and prayers, either of someone else or of the saints. But it's really key that things that operate ex opere operantes really depend on the disposition of the person. So, Father, if I can ask, um, then as opposed to a sacrament where the, the minister doesn't necessarily have to believe in what he's doing with the sacramental or with the uh, other types of prayers that you're speaking of, if you don't believe in what you're doing, then it's not going to be efficacious. Right. It's not going to be efficacious. In a sacramental, at least someone has to have faith. If someone, a green scapular we talked about handing to someone who doesn't have the faith, at least the person giving the sacramental has the faith. 
So there's somewhere attached. It really is a, is a form of external prayer that God answers and, and that we receive uh, actual graces from. But yeah, faith is, faith is really essential. It's going to work according to your faith, yeah. according to the degree of your faith, basically. I've always thought of sacramentals as sort of like little focusing points or lightning mm-hmm. rods or something. Cause you know, we we're praying all the time for conversions, for graces, for things to happen, but the sacramentals sort of permit us to give us a focal point to focus on like the green scapular. Okay. It, it lets us focus on the conversion of this right. person, which we could be praying for anyway, but right. it's sort of like a, a focusing of th- our intentions. I think it's just important to keep this in mind. The two different types you know, ex opere operantes and ex opere operato. I'm going to be as bold to say, I'm afraid that in the minds of many Catholics, and that's including traditional Catholics, there is a tendency of being a little superstitious in regards to prayers and devotions, and even regard to some sacramentals. doesn't mean that these things are wrong. It's just sometimes they're used in a, in a slightly superstitious way. Uh, there is a danger to use them in this way, and we have to avoid that. If I read from a book called Moral Guidance by Father Edwin Healy in 1942, he says this, It's not wrong for Catholics to wear medals, crucifixes, and the like, for these are not worn for any supposed magical powers attributed to them, but in order to foster devotion or to gain indulgences. Nor is it wrong to recite a set number of prayers, for example, in the case of the rosary, a novena, etc., provided that we do not base our hope of obtaining the help sought in the supposed magic power of the number. However, a trace of superstition may creep into these pious practices, and this should be carefully guarded against. So just in general, that we don't treat these things as though they had power of their own self. And what I mean is that in all the prayers that we find in a prayer book, we forget the ex opere operantes nature of these things. And that we think that a certain prayer formula has an intrinsic power in the very words recited, irrespective of one's faith and one's attention and one's interior devotion. These aren't sacraments. They're not sacramental forms. They don't operate the same way a sacrament does. You say the words and you get this effect. And the priest says, this is my body and the bread is changed and transformed, transubstantiated into the body and blood of Christ. We shouldn't think that a certain prayer to Our Lady of Lords is not as powerful as a prayer to Our Lady of Guadalupe. Mm. You're praying to the same person. It's not a magical form. Oh, I said these words. You didn't say those words. Or to think that one novena has some special power more than another novena. What really gives a novena power is your faith, is that you persevere in your prayer, that you have absolute childlike confidence in God while you're praying it that you trust God completely and abandon yourself. That's what gives power to these prayers. Not the words necessarily, uh, not the formula, but the faith. There is a danger of thinking that there's a certain magic number of times that a prayer formula is said that you'll get a desired result. And now a novena, I'll talk about that. It's a traditional devotion where we pray nine days in a row for a special intention and usually using the same formula each day. But we have to remember that the value of this type of prayer consists really in the perseverance, as I said, and the devotion of one praying the prayer. It's not the formula. Father Edward Lean once criticized what he called penny-in-the-slot spirituality, putting a devotional coin in the machine and expecting God to output what we want. We shouldn't imagine God like a big slot machine where eight days is not quite good enough, but nine, nine's the magic number and he'll do what we want. Novenas are great. But they're not magical. And 
You just have to remember that in prayer, you're speaking to a real person and not a machine. And what he wants is that perseverance. He wants he wants to see your love. He wants to see faith in you. There's some Advent prayers that are quite popular where you pray the this same prayer 15 times a day from the Feast of St. Andrew to Christmas, I believe it is. Hmm. And it's a beautiful little prayer for Christmas. It says on the Holy Card that it's never been known to fail. It's easy to write down. But you know what? I don't necessarily accept that as a guarantee, and I don't think there's a magic number that will get the result done. The prayer is approved. I, I just warn people, be aware of any guarantees for prayer formulas, especially in the traditional movement. There's a tendency to dig up things that have been buried in books for many years and then republish them and things circulate that probably should not have been circulated, or things get added to pamphlets that wasn't originally in that pamphlet, then it becomes almost scripture. It mm. becomes, you know, a new gospel or a new prophecy or whatever. I like the saying, uh, maybe you've heard it, um, my prayers always get answered, but sometimes the answer is no. Right. That's what we forget. <laughs> yeah. Um, we'd like to remind you that you're listening to The Spiritual Life on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, John Thompson, and I'm joined by Father Bernard Utley, OSB. And today we've been discussing prayer and in particular vocal prayer. The Spiritual Life is a production of Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. Father? Okay, I'm sure some of the things I'll say in, in today's show will step on some toes. And I don't mean to do that necessarily, but uh, some of the things need to be said. They're not said too often. Like I was just talking about those Advent prayers. I, it's a very beautiful prayer. I, I don't have it memorized right now, but it is a beautiful prayer. I, uh, I have prayed it many times, but we should try, if we want to take part in that devotion, which is perfectly acceptable, to pray 15 times a day. Pray it very devoutly 15 times. Don't just rattle it off 15 times and thinking that, well, I've said it the 15 times. It's not a magic number. What God wants to see is dedication and devotion. So pray it 15 times a day for a month. And if you receive what you are praying for, it's not because you said the number and said it for that long, but because you showed faith, you showed confidence in God. And there's another pamphlet floating around that I think it's the, called the Pieta. Yeah. Pieta, a lot of people say. There's magnificent prayers, they're called. And then it's included in that is, is, is like 15 promises that you say these prayers every day for one year, and you're basically guaranteed salvation. You have, like, I think 15 members of your immediate family is going to be saved, and then mm -hmm. 15 people, descendants, will be taken out of purgatory. I forget all the promises. Yeah, I've seen that booklet. I think it has a, a blue cover. Right, right. Yeah. Quite explicit, quite extreme. I've heard of people who have prayed these prayers and, for a year, and then they think that, oh, I'm set then. No, I'm set. That's about it. I don't have to do anything more. Some people have used them as an excuse to stop coming to church because oh, I've said these prayers every day. That is superstition. That is treating them in a superstitious way. First of all, these promises, I don't think the promises have been truly approved from what I understand. I think the church would be somewhat, of course, generous, but also reserved on indulgences. You have maybe seven years, 10 years. They're not going to just throw out indulgences going everyone saved say this little formula and it's it's going to save your whole family. 
The church doesn't prove that. How many masses are said for the release of a soul in purgatory? How many saint stories have you heard about that it takes, you know, 30 masses to release a soul? But all you have to do is recite these prayers. They're more powerful than the mass. And you get all these souls out. Or there's another prayer out there, that prayer of St. Gertrude, I think, said uh, a thousand souls from purgatory. I tried to find that in her life, uh, uh, reading her biography. And there was a prayer when she said it, our Lord said a thousand souls were released when she said it. And she was considered one of the greatest saints of those ages. So then someone takes that and writes a little prayer card and said, every time you say this, a thousand souls, that doesn't apply to everyone who says it. If you're another St. Gertrude, yeah, uh, okay, maybe. If you're St. Gertrude the Great, who was, uh, our Lord said to other saints, he loved her more than anyone else at the time in the world, his beloved one. So, yeah, okay, if you're St. Gertrude. But it's using a prayer formula as a magical thing. You just say the words and you're going to get this effect without really understanding that it's according to your disposition. Yeah, well, that prayer of St. Gertrude then is a perfect example of the ex opere operantis. Right. Because its it, its efficacy is a function of the person saying it. Right. St. Gertrude the Great. Yeah, not yeah. just the words. Right, yeah. right. And, and briefly, let's talk about indulgences. Being uh, externally regulated by the church, the church demands that indulgences, in order to be gained, they have to at least be articulated or audibly recited. For ejaculatory prayer or aspirational prayer, they can be recited purely mentally to gain the indulgence. And for people who can't speak, really, that applies to all prayers. Here again, indulgences aren't magic. The church doesn't really promise that the mere recitation of this or that prayer will fully receive the indulgence. There should be some interior attention and devotion. It has to be a human act, a devout human act. And this is especially true of plenary indulgences. The church will attach a plenary indulgence to some act of devotion, usually an act of devotion repeated each day for a month, for example, but in order to fully gain the, the full plenary indulgence, it will depend on your interior devotion. That is why in regards to indulgence prayer, sometimes less is more. It's better to pray well than pray a lot of words. And if we think that just by rattling off a prayer, we're going to get the full benefit of that prayer and gain that full indulgence, then we're sadly mistaken. God looks to the devotional quality and not just to the mechanical recitation of the prayer. So just in general, the vocal prayer formulas found in our prayer books are not to be used as magical formula. And they're not even sacramental formula. Sacrament, again, sacramental forms produce grace ex opere operato by the very words spoken, by the very power of the, the ritual. But these prayers, private prayers, really depend on one's devotion. Uh, what matters is to actually pray while reciting these prayers, raising the mind and heart to God in real faith and hope and charity. Now, I'm not saying don't pray novenas or make use of prayer formulas and other devotions. It's just use them properly. Use them why they're there. They're means to incite interior devotion. These prayers are really good and edifying. And if we really meant what we pray, they will be pleasing to God. Oh, so, okay, Father, if, if you're going to be praying, what uh, would be the benefit of using a formula for your prayer? Well, there's actually lots of benefits of using a formula for a vocal prayer. Technically, vocal prayer would still be vocal if you didn't use a pre-written formula, but just vocalized your own thoughts and sentiments in your own words. But normally, though, vocal prayer is usually synonymous with using a pre-written formula. So remember, in these talks, 
on the spiritual life, I'm primarily dealing with private prayer and not so much with public liturgical prayer, the official prayer of the church. Very few of our listeners would be under obligation to to pray the divine office or to offer mass. That's actually, I think, Father, I'll just interject. That's actually one of the distortions of Vatican II. From what you're saying, in the traditional Catholic way, the wording of the public prayer is important, or it's set. Absolutely. But in the private vocal prayer, the wording is not. Not as much. No. But what they've done in the in the Vatican II, they said, oh, well, they're treating the public prayer just right. like private prayer, because the, the right. public prayer, the wording becomes variable. Right. So they've completely distorted the distinction. Right. We have to remember that some of the things in the Novus Ordo, that there's grains of truth, and it's mm. abused. Some good things have been abused. Yeah, the people should be more involved in the Mass, but that means interiorly from their pews. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Like, there's lots of things that As should be done. As opposed to sleeping. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. There's lots yeah. of things that should be done. But sometimes there's a grain of truth involved, and then it's abused. Yes. The same thing with, with the Protestant notion of a personal relationship with Christ. Absolutely every Catholic should have a personal mm. relationship with Christ, or you're not really living the Catholic faith. But to mean by that that... Therefore, we don't have any ceremonies or rituals or, or anyone else. That's an abuse. So there's a grain of truth there that we, we have, but we have more. That's the problem. So let's distinguish between public prayer and your personal prayer. Personal prayer, you have much more freedom. Nothing is of, of strict obligation. We have the freedom, for example, in private prayer to vocalize our own thoughts if we wanted to. So both public prayer and private prayer, it should be inspired with interior devotion, but it, in one way, it's more essential to private prayer. And in public prayer, much like a, a priest offering Mass, he may personally be distracted and not entirely fervent. But as long as he offers Mass correctly externally with the minimum of intention of doing what the Church does and saying the right form for consecration, it's a valid Mass and gives glory to God. But that Mass may not personally benefit that priest as much because he lacks that interior attention and devotion. But for private prayer... Uh, really, in a sense, its whole value is in the degree of one's interior attention and devotion. So let's talk about some of the benefits of vocal prayer, especially vocal prayer using a pre-written formula. First of all, it's easier. The primary reason for using a formula is simply that it's often easier. The supernatural sentiments and desires and petitions are already there for you, and you don't have to come up with your own thoughts. And many of us would have a difficulty, I think, in formulating what exactly we want or what we should pray for. And formulas from prayer books tend to be well-written, very pious and, and balanced. Uh, left, I think, to ourselves, many of us wouldn't know what types of things to pray for, for this or that virtue or grace, protection uh, from this or that occasion of sin. So without a formula that expresses some supernatural truth or, and supernatural reality, we would most likely only pray for our temporal needs. We would forget the whole supernatural order, the sanctification of our soul, growing in the love of God, for example. We would probably still think to pray for the conversion of our family and friends, but most likely we would forget to pray for the deeper conversion of our own soul to God. So vocal prayers remind us to pray for sinners, our neighbors, our family and friends, the souls in purgatory. It reminds us to direct our thoughts and prayers to the Holy Trinity, the Holy Ghost, the Sacred Heart of Jesus, Our Lady, St. Joseph, the saints, angels, our guardian angels. So it really helps to, to feed us with these ideas. Another reason is that 
vocal prayer, they help us focus our mind's attention on the supernatural. And for the unprepared mind that is not habituated to prayer, vocal prayer is really a necessity. You wouldn't just pull someone off the street and say, okay, here, contemplate or meditate. They wouldn't even know what to even meditate on, or they wouldn't know what contemplation is, and they wouldn't have the grace of contemplation. They wouldn't be at that point yet. So without vocal prayers helping us, you would think about everything but God and the supernatural truths and our spiritual needs. So it's really a training ground, and it exercises our our soul's uh, supernatural faith. And if you don't exercise your muscles, you'll never advance. You never exercise your soul through these prayers, you'll never advance. You won't know how to pray without them if you haven't prayed with them at one point. Hmm. So, Father, uh, where would the uh, the rosary fit into all this? Because uh, of all the vocal prayers that are available to us, I mean, the, you know, the Our Father, we say every time we go to Mass. Mm-hmm. But uh, it seems to me that the, the rosary is a vocal prayer that's sort of in a category of its own. You know, it's been uh, first received, I guess, by St. Dominic. And it's, it's been in the church for hundreds of years. But then at Fatima, Our Lady promoted that. And it's been a source of a lot of grace for people. So would the rosary be in a special category of its own? Or is it uh, part of what you're saying about being instructive and edifying and that sort of thing? It's a good question. My view of it is that the rosary is a powerful prayer because it contains some of the most beautiful and divinely inspired vocal prayers. But the heart of the rosary is meditation on the life of Christ. It's more than a vocal prayer. And it's primarily a mental prayer. That's the heart of it. It's not just reciting these prayers. That's not the rosary. The rosary is meditation. The rosary is meditation on these mysteries. So that's really the heart of it. And what St. Dominic was doing when he was preaching the rosary, there were traditions, there were customs of praying these prayers, he would say these, I believe it began by him preaching and then people reciting prayers to keep them occupied. But so you can think and then, but it keeps your physical side of you occupied while your mind is more free to think. The heart of the rosary is not the Hail Marys and the Our Father. That's kind of the background music. It kind of keeps your mouth and your imagination somewhat occupied and your physical side of you occupied while your mind is more free to think of these mysteries. So the rosary is really the school of contemplation. It has been used to help souls reach a contemplative state. So the rosary itself is a means to an end. I I don't believe it's an end in itself. I believe the great mystics would not be necessarily, if you look in their writings, they wouldn't be promoting it as much to other contemplatives. St. John of the Cross I'm sure prayed the rosary, but he didn't promote it in his writings as being pure contemplation. So the rosary is accessible to everyone. And that's why it is promoted, because everyone could do it in one form or another. But to use it to build your spiritual life, to become more and more interior, more and more simplified, more and more contemplative. And it's not about quantity. Uh, you know, I've heard uh, one person saying that they said 50 rosaries that day. But they, yeah, they, they may have said 50 rosaries, but they didn't pray 50 rosaries because it just becomes words, quality rather than quantity. The rosary is not a sacrament. I mean, it still operates under ex opere operantes. Those are the only two things. So quality is more important than quantity. 
The rosary should be said every day. But if you only had five minutes, don't rush through and get it done. Think, oh, I got to get these decades out. I got to get these in. No, it's better to say, I'm just going to say one decade really well than try to cram in all of it. If you have the time, say the whole thing. But if you don't, if you can't sit down and say, I have 15 minutes or, or a half an hour or whatever, then it's better to pray well than pray fast and much. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, definitely. So yeah. the rosary, don't use it in a superstitious way as though the mere words have power. God wants to see and Our Lady wants to see some movement interiorly towards Christ. You look at Our Lady in the mysteries and you look at Our Lord in those mysteries of the rosary and you see the dispositions they must have and the dis dispositions you should have and you try to conform yourself to them. So sometimes the meditation on a mystery can be so simplified as to be a simple thought, a simple disposition of humility or charity towards others. And you simply bask in that idea and you try to form your interior disposition into that mystery and that virtue that is promoted by that mystery. You're not trying to come up with novel, complex theological thoughts by meditation on the mystery. You're trying to incite interior devotion by thinking of those things. So the, the, the benefit of a pre-written formula is also that it doesn't matter how you feel one day to the next, whether you feel fervent or feel very dry or very distracted or discouraged. So it has a, a kind of stabilizing effect on one's spiritual life taken as a whole. It's kind of an anchor that, mm -hmm. that uh, if, if you only did what you felt like doing, you wouldn't do anything. Right? Oh, yes, yes. So again, the uh, vocal prayer says, okay, I have to recite this. And then it often awakens that devotion. It also brings you back and, and feeds your devotion. So these formulas can be very edifying in that the, the sentiments they express and they can teach us a lot about sanctity and spirituality. So is that sort of like having a statue or a holy picture to sort of bring your mind back to God? Really, that's essentially it's the same thing. It's just in words hmm. rather than pictures. Right. Okay. I, that's why I think a lot of prayers are very edifying. I've taken, you know, a prayer and just, I'm just going to just read it like a spiritual book. And what are they trying to teach you? Hmm. There's a lot of, a lot of truth there, a lot of things that we could use as spiritual reading. I wanted to give some practical advice in regards to vocal prayer. Everyone should recite at least some vocal prayers every day. A, a day really shouldn't pass without some formula, however brief, being prayed. This stabilizes our spiritual life and it protects us from a too subjective spirituality and, and from a false mysticism. As you grow into the prayer of contemplation and that becomes your habitual prayer, that's not a vocal prayer. It's a purely mental prayer, a very simplified mental prayer. Vocal prayer becomes repugnant in those stages. You don't want many words. You don't want just words about God. You want God himself and you're hungry for God. And too many words really distract you and pull you away from God. It's like Martha and Mary. It's Martha running around doing all this stuff when you just want to sit at his feet and love him like Mary does. And that's the better part is just to sit and watch our Lord and to love him and not to be running around all the time mentally. And that's really what a Martha is. But even for a contemplative, you're going to say some prayers. I think it would be false to say, no, they eliminate everything. No, it's just t the tendency is not to be overburdened with vocal prayers because their devotion is in a different kind. One prayer that I highly recommend 
It's more than a prayer. It's an act, really. And a day should not pass without praying the act of contrition. I think the act of contrition, sorrow for your sins, you can use the typical formula for it that we use in confession, which I highly recommend. It has all the intentions that you should form. You can simplify that form for yourself as long as it basically says the same thing. If you want to just pray to God, I'm sorry for my sins. I love you. You're so good and I love you above all things and I'm sorry for offending you. That's the same thing, essentially. But it's just there's something good about that one more popular formula because it it really expresses the heart of contrition. And when we pray that act of contrition and we mean what we say, we should try to primarily pray it out of the motive of love of God Hmm. and have sorrow for offending the goodness of God, because that makes that act of contrition what is called an act of perfect contrition. Now, perfect doesn't mean that it can't get any better. It's a kind of prayer. All it refers to is that the motive is out of love of God. And if that's your motive, that means that that act will obtain forgiveness of your sins even before going to confession, as long as you have the intention of going to confession. And it will put you in the state of grace if you have the misfortune to lose it. So the act of perfect contrition is something that is not beyond the reach of the average person with the help of God's grace. This is something that I'll have a whole show on because I think it's essential. St. Alphonsus and other theologians have said if they could preach one sermon, they would preach on on the act of contrition as being an essential prayer. Because to save your soul, you have to be in the state of grace. Now, if you can't get to a priest in time to go to confession or whatever, you need to be in the state of grace. So this prayer will put you in the state of grace. So that's essential. Now, you normally have the obligation to go to confession then when you can, but at least you can live in peace and that you're in the state of grace. You should pray it every time before you go to sleep at night, pray it in the morning, often. And if you're already in the state of grace, you'll increase grace, increase your love of God. We grow in love by loving just like you learn to walk by walking. You learn to skate by skating. So you learn to love God by actually making acts of love for him. That's really the heart of our faith, love of God. And because we're sinners, to be sorry for offending him because he's infinitely good. I think that uh, prayer, the perfect contrition, is perfect, if you don't mind the expression, for our time. Because not everyone has easy access to a true priest. And to have that means of helping yourself to get into the state of grace and remain there or confessing sorrow for your sins and and with the right intentions i guess you're saying they would be forgiven i right. mean to right. have that kind of prayer and practice it regularly right. is the is a great boon for those of us living in our times right and that's why i i've as soon as i started this series of shows the two shows i wanted to do from the beginning i just haven't got to it yet is one on perfect contrition and the other one on spiritual communion. And I think those are the two pillars right now that we need because priests are rare and and few and far between. There's not many around, not like the old days. And people need access to the sacraments. And since they can't get to the sacraments, these two things will be the, the solid pillars of their spiritual life and may save many souls, especially the act of contrition. There is the faulty notion that an act of contrition is very hard to make that only saints can do it, that's false. That is false. Because an act of perfect contrition does not refer to one's intensity, but motive. So that you don't have to be crying. You don't have to be all intense. You should be fervent. You should mean what you say. But there's going to be degrees of perfect contrition. Mm. So it's a kind of contrition. It's purely on your motive. 
that I'm truly contrite because I've offended the good God and that I love him and I want to love him. And that what, that's what makes it perfect contrition. Not that you're crying and rending your garments and such like. There is a faulty notion that it's very hard, very rare, maybe one in a million, you might get it. That's not true. And when I have a show on that, I'll, I'll prove that. I, in fact, have a whole big, fat, thick book just on this topic showing that the real tradition of the church is that for someone in goodwill, it's easy to stay in the state of grace. Hmm. It's easy to make an act of perfect contrition. One who resolves, I want to avoid mortal sin, it's easy to stay in the state of grace. Now, with the help of God's grace, it takes effort, but it's not impossible. And so that should be very encouraging when Mm -hmm. we get to that. Yes, Uh, definitely. The other point about vocal prayers is that we should have some, but not too many. And I recommend that everyone should have some prayers that recite, but don't try to cram too many vocal prayers in one day. And the reasons are many is that, remember, God wants quality rather than quantity. And the danger of having too many prayers is that we'll lose focus on what we're saying and we'll rush through them just to get through them. We won't mean what we say. It'll become words, 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 signifying nothing in your heart. That's the danger, again, in thinking that the mere words have a magic effect. You're trying to conform your disposition and your heart to what you're saying. So if you're rushing through it, it's going to mean nothing. Your heart will never have even time of of meaning what you're saying. It's just going to be words. So the basic error is to think that more is always better. If I have one scapular, maybe two is better. It's not true. Sometimes less is more. Choose a few, but say them well. So it's not so much how much you pray, but how well you pray. And sometimes you just keep it simple. That's kiss. Keep keep it simple, stupid. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Another point I want to bring up is that none of these private prayers... And private devotions are of obligation. So for a priest and religious, we have divine office. What's of obligation is penance that we receive in confession. Only these are really obligatory. It's not even obligatory under pain of sin to pray grace before meals, which I, I recommend you do, but it's not sinful. It's not binding under sin. This includes the rosary. We should say it every day, but it's not binding under sin. It's not the 11th commandment, but we should say it. And if we neglected all prayer during the day just out of laziness, well, then it'd be a sin of sloth. It'd be a sin of of laziness. But in itself, no particular private prayer is binding under sin. Since this is true, when we are in private prayer, let us not think that we have to stick to the actual text of the prayer formula. We're totally allowed to pause, to stretch out the prayer to add our own thoughts and desires. This may seem shocking to people, but again, the words, someone else just wrote that prayer in a book. You know, we have this fancy prayer that maybe Cardinal Newman or this saint wrote it or whatever, and we take it as gospel. No, it's not. It's just an aid. It's just a help. And you can do whatever you want to that prayer. Really, you can add something if you if you want to. Now, publicly in the community, if you're reciting with your family, try to stick to the text. But privately, if it's just you and God, you can uh, pause and, and add your own thoughts. They're not sacramental forms. The priest can't add stuff to the, not the least word to the mass, but in private prayers and private devotions, you can. They're means to an end, and the end is love of God. The end is devotion to God. For example, after communion, if we decide to read a prayer of thanksgiving from our missal, and the two most popular ones are uh, one from St. Thomas Aquinas and then the other one from St. Bonaventure. Now, suppose that you are reading one of these prayers and halfway through you feel inspired to talk to our Lord about a particular problem you have or a desire you have. 
something bothering you or, or you just want to stop and just, just think of him and love him, make an act of love, then stop. There's no obligation to finish that form. That prayer has done its job. It's like a ladder getting you on a roof. You don't need it anymore. You're on the roof. It's a means to an end. So if something you read incites you with an act of love for God or sorrow or whatever, then stop and express that. Hold on to that grace as long as it's there. And when it passes, then continue with the prayer. But don't feel that you have to finish the formula before you express your own thoughts. Don't do that. Uh, God is giving you a grace, so don't ignore it. Or it might pass and you'll never get that chance again. And this is really the way that God speaks to us. This applies to prayers we recite in private. Don't do this in a family and just go off on your own tangent. But personally, between you and God, you can do that. That is really the method of prayer for monastic spiritual reading called Lexio Divina. When you read, it's kind of a mixture of prayer and spiritual reading that you may one day you may read a paragraph and nothing speaks to you. It doesn't mean anything. And you just go on, you keep reading. And then the next day, maybe one line might hit you. And then stop, close the book, use that as a springboard for prayer, inciting an interior devotion, pray to God. If that's the rest of the hour, then you've made good spiritual reading that day. It's not about quantity. It's not, I've gotten through five pages a day or 50 pages. It's that it's incited prayer. And that I'm actually digesting what I'm reading and it's actually helping me. The same thing with private vocal prayers. If halfway through the litany you're praying and it just something hits you, you can stop and meditate on that and think about it. Don't feel, oh, I've got to get through this. i got to finish the rest and then I'll pray to God. That's like I have to finish a prayer before I pray to God. Vocal prayers are a means to incite devotion the danger if we try to recite too many is that they'll have the opposite effect and snuff out interior devotion. It's like you're trying to start a little fire and you throw on like, you know, five logs. It's it's going to put it out. Now, you may not want to do this all the time or with every prayer, but sometimes just take one of your prayers and go slowly. Each phrase, try to mean what you're actually saying. Pause between the thoughts. Try to assimilate it and see what else it, it, it excites in your heart. Meditate on the prayer. It's said that St. Elizabeth, I'm not sure if it's St. Elizabeth of Portugal or St. Elizabeth of Hungary, I don't know, but one of them, that it took one hour for her to recite one Our Father. That's amazing to us. We'd be like, that's it? You only said one? I've said a hundred. Because the Our Father is not just vocal prayer. It, it's, it's really the whole spiritual life in summary. And it contains every sentiment and disposition that we need. And when our Lord was asked by his disciples to teach us to pray, he said, thus shall you pray. So in, thus means in this way. It's more than just a formula. It's really all the dispositions you need. So much is contained in the Our Father. For example, that St. Teresa of Avila's whole book, The Way of Perfection, is just a commentary on the Our Father. St. Therese of the Child Jesus could barely make it past the words Our Father. And they just filled her with devotion and she would just cry. It'd be enough. But some of us will say, I have so many prayers to recite. No, you don't. You don't have to. If you, if you did try to squeeze everything in, you're probably not going to be praying very well. So just take one of those prayers once in a while, pray it slowly, and really mean what you say. I wanted to, to read a, a quote from Cardinal Gasquet. He was a Benedictine monk and cardinal. 
a great English historian and, and the monastic state. He wrote a book on the religious life called Religio Religiosi in 1923, and this is what he says, quote, The first and essential condition of prayer, properly so called, is that it should proceed from the mind and heart. Mere lip service is not prayer at all, and is as useful to the soul as would be turning of the prayer wheel. In every form of prayer to God, it is the mind that matters, it is the heart that counts. St. John Chrysostom says, Although thou shouldst not kneel, nor strike thy breast, nor raise thine hands to heaven, thou wilt have made a good prayer, if thine heart be glowing with love of God. Unquote. Even vocal prayers, to be prayers at all, must be something more than words. They must have a devout and thinking mind behind them. Indeed, it is the mind and heart that really are efficacious in God's sight, and are useful to the soul in bringing it into relation with him, and the words are chiefly needed to concentrate our thoughts and keep our mind from wandering. In our vocal prayers, although we make their sentiments and aspirations our own, we frequently feel that we are merely adopting the expressions of another. They leave our inward beings cold and our hearts unmoved. And insofar as this is so, they do not imply the true outpouring of our inmost hearts and souls to God. In fact, it requires very little experience to prove to us that the intimate communion with God in mental prayer is almost essential to the proper raising of our minds to heavenly things during the time of our vocal prayer. One point I wanted to say is to remind people in regard to prayer, which I like to remind people, is that, that you're addressing a real person. We have to remember that. It's a real person. Prayer, I think, often feels as if we were writing a note to someone and sticking it in a bottle and throwing it in the ocean and hoping that someone will get it. Is anyone listening to me? Is anyone out there? And we just hope that God is there. So we may not say this explicitly, but I think it's often there subconsciously. We have to stir up our faith and really realize that God is closer to, to us than we're to ourselves. He reads our mind and heart perfectly. And even before we have formed the words of our prayer, he knows what you need. Our Lord himself said that. Uh, we're talking to a real person here. Our Lord is real. And all this goes in the same way, but in a lesser sense, to Our Lady and the Saints. Even though they're not omnipresent and all-knowing as God is, they're real persons. And they'll know when someone is addressing them. God will let them know whatever they need to know. They'll have that infused knowledge. So don't read a prayer to a saint or to Our Lady or to Our Lord as though they're not in the room. Actually think of them in the room. You're talking to a real person. Speak to them. When we pray before a crucifix, we're not praying to the crucifix, but we're praying to our Lord, which the crucifix represents. So direct the prayer. And this may seem like a very subtle point, commonsensical, but if you really got down to the nitty gritty, most of our praying, we're not really thinking of it as directing to a real person. We're just reciting and hoping it gets somewhere. It's going to be heard in heaven somehow. When you actually, when we're talking right now, talk to a real person. You're talking. And treat God that way. St. Therese of the Child Jesus, this is an excellent quote of hers. She says, I have not the courage to force myself to seek beautiful prayers and books. Not knowing which to choose, I act as children do who cannot read. I say quite simply to the good God what I want to tell him, and he always understands me. Prayer is like a mighty queen to whom the king's audience is never denied and to whom he can refuse nothing. We can be heard without having to read any set formula adapted to the circumstance. For me... Prayer is an outburst of the heart, a glance upwards to heaven, a cry of gratitude and love uttered in affliction or in gladness, or in short, anything that raises the soul to God. And that is from the little flower. 
I have a few other that really summarize uh, all I've been saying here. One is from Abbot Eugene Boylan, a Trappist monk, in his book, Difficulties in Mental Prayer, which I highly recommend to everyone. He says, quote, If the style of the church's public prayer comes naturally to one, well and good. If not, then no attempt should be made to cast one's prayers in such a style. Vouchsafe and other words of that sort are best left unused. And just a footnote, I want to say that for public prayers, it's it's good to use thee and thou and wouldst thou and hitherto and we beseech thee, but you don't have to do that for private prayer. Uh, it's not It's not disrespectful to use a more familiar term. Many of the saints use that, a more familiar term, St. Therese did and others. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what vouchsafe means. Right. <laughs> Hitherto, and yeah, and there's that, a lot of... Yeah, old, older English terms. Right. That, we yeah. have to realize that English does change. So if you're saying a public prayer, you'd say the the Lord is with thee. I mean, you still keep the formal terminology. If but, that's the formula. Yeah. But there's nothing intrinsically wrong with saying you. Ah, you're right. Because it is. I mean, that's... Sometimes it's funny when, when someone uh, changes the formula on the fly yeah. and they change you to the. The is the, is singular. Singular, yes. And you can be singular and plural. So it'd be wrong to address all the saints as the. Or, you know, but sometimes right. they do that like just to be more. It's like, no, that's not accurate. <laughs> yes. Yeah, thinking they're being more traditional. Or right. Yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, continue with Abbott Boylan here. Through a wrong notion of our Lord and of the correct attitude before him, some souls have great difficulty in letting themselves go and talking to him quite naturally when at prayer. Now, it is true that reverence is essential when at prayer, but in private prayer, we are in converse with a God who is in love with us and who seeks so great an intimacy with us and that with such ardor that he gives us his own body and blood for our food, thus showing the intensity of his desire, unquote. So vocal prayer is a means of raising our mind and hearts to God. It's a means. It's not an end in itself. And if it was an end in itself, then progress would be multiplying it as many as possible. It'd be like today, if you wanted to progress, you have to add another one. And tomorrow you have to add another one. But it's not that. Again, it's going to be quality and the fervency. Father John Grew, I have uh, something to read from him. Father John Grew is a, is a Jesuit spiritual writer that I found when I was at the Abbey a treasure, a real treasure. Mm. He died in 1803 and tends to be of a more contemplative nature. You know, he's really old school. He's really the old contemplative school. And that's why as a Benedictine, I, I like him. Uh, he's not into this, you know, really complicated discursive meditation prayer that many Jesuits became. Mm. He's really more of a, a Benedictine and at heart. He says this, the truly devout man does not burden himself with a great quantity of vocal prayers and practices, which do not leave him time to breathe. He always preserves his liberty of spirit. He is neither scrupulous nor uneasy about himself. He goes on with simplicity and confidence. Now, I wanted to read to you, uh, this is from Father Grew. One thing about Father Grew I want to mention is that Father Grew, when he wrote, he never made a mistake in his writings. He never corrected himself. They have his manuscripts, no eraser marks. There's no corrections. It would come straight through. And it's it's almost inspired, you know, in that sense. Wow. And then later when he was older, towards his death, people wanted him to write more. And he said, no, I'm, God's not giving me anything. So really, he only wrote because he was inspired to write. He wasn't trying to figure things out. And that's, a, that's an amazing thing because most people, yeah. you know, it's, it takes work. You're trying to reword it. No, it just came up. He's quoting our Lord here. And this is a quote that many people forget. Our Lord said, when you are praying, speak not much as the heathens, for they think that in their much speaking, they may be heard. 
Be not you therefore like to them, for your father knoweth what is needful for you before you ask him. Hmm. So Father Gru continues, It is a fault, then, to use so much speech in prayer. And it must be a serious fault, since Jesus Christ takes so much care to warn us against it, and even likens those who pray thus to the heathen. Assuredly, he could not express himself more strongly. We should never have dreamed that such was the case, had not the gospel made this definite assertion. This passage, therefore, contains an instruction of great importance for us if we fully penetrate its meaning. The heathen idea of the divinity was as low as it was false. They degraded their gods almost to the level of humanity, believing them to have no direct knowledge of the needs of those who invoke them, and they therefore had to use many words to explain their wants. They imagined, too, that these deities, being subject like men to passions and prejudices, were not always inclined to do good to their suppliants, and so they so used all their eloquence to influence and change their dispositions trying to butter up the gods, right? Although Christians are very far from having similar ideas of the true God, whose knowledge has no bounds and whose goodness is infinite, it is a fact that their ignorance and foolishness sometimes leads them to deal with him as they might deal with a man. In making their request, they described their situation to him at length, as though he did not know it. They explained their intention to him with the utmost precision, apparently fearing that he may misunderstand it. They reproach themselves for omitting to mention a person or circumstance as though God, who reads the heart, could not supplement their faulty memory. They tell him all their reasons and enlarge on the motives most likely to touch him, as if his goodness needed to be urged. And they rise from their knees quite satisfied with themselves, if they have talked much, insisted forcibly, and repeated the same thing over and over again. It seems as if, like the heathen, they mistrusted God, and as though they could never inform him of their needs sufficiently, nor do enough to dispose him in their favor. It is not faith, nor is it even reason that governs such prayers as these. It is the work of the imagination and the senses. Uneducated persons, and I'll say this, which is politically incorrect today, and women in general, are the most inclined to err this way. So a little bit maybe emotional or lacking some trust in God. Our devotion should be based on theological truths. God's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He's infinitely good. And those truths should influence our spiritual life. I guess it's a stereotype, Father, but it does seem to me that women tend to be the ones that multiply devotions and and things. They tend to be. But on the other hand, men tend to dismiss them. But yes, in either case, our spiritual life is not carried around in a prayer book. And and you find people, both male and female, that if you took away their prayer book, they couldn't pray. And they come to church and they have a big bulging missile full of prayer cards. And God forbid they forget their prayer because they lost the prayer book. Let me finish Father Gru here. Our blessed Savior did all he could to prevent us from falling into this habit and to cure his disciples of it. And he could not have adduced a more potent reason for avoiding it than such was the method of the heathen. So he forbade them to use many words in their prayers, since God knows what we are going to say before they open their lips. It is not words that he answers, but the purity of man's intentions and the disposition of his heart. Unquote. Pretty clear. So people, again, they tend to get very touchy about their vocal prayer. Unfortunately, I think it's inordinate attachment to a particular devotion. And it often manifests really a superficial understanding of the spiritual life. I'm not saying don't have devotions. I'm not saying don't have vocal prayers. Just use them for the reason that they're given you. And sometimes you have to let go as you progress in the spiritual life. So don't look down upon someone who doesn't have devotion to your favorite Right, right. 
Father Gru goes on, he says, long vocal prayers seem to be characteristic of those whose devotion is only external. The reason that many people are so much attached to vocal prayer and care for no other manner of praying is in the first place that they cling too much to sensible things. And the second, that they wish to be quite certain they are praying and think that certainty would be weaker if their prayer were altogether spiritual. And in the third place, that they fear distractions and hope to avoid them to some degree by fixing their imagination and senses on a book. And that may be true. It does help you fix your imagination. Before I go, I have to address something. Apparently, someone objected to my use of St. Thomas Aquinas's words concerning vocal prayer. Hmm. Uh, let me give you what he says here. Prayer is twofold. This is from the Summa Theologica. Prayer is twofold, common and individual. Common prayer is that which is offered to God by the ministers of the church representing the body of the faithful. Wherefore, such like prayer should come to the knowledge of the whole people for whom it is offered. And this would not be possible unless it were vocal prayer. This is what I talked about earlier. Therefore, it is reasonably ordained that the ministers of the church should say these prayers even in a loud voice so that they may come to the knowledge of all. On the other hand, individual prayer is that which is offered by any single person whether he prays for himself or for others. And it is not essential to such a prayer as this that it be vocal. And yet the voice is employed in such prayers for three reasons. First, in order to excite interior devotion, whereby the mind of the person praying is raised to God, because by means of external signs, whether of words or of deeds, the human mind is moved as regards apprehension and consequently also as regards affections. Hence, Augustine says that by means of words and other signs, we arouse ourselves more effectively to an increase of holy desires. Hence, then alone should we use words and such like signs when they help to excite the mind internally. But if they distract or in any way impede the mind, we should abstain from them. And this happens chiefly to those whose mind is sufficiently prepared for devotion without having recourse to these signs. So he's basically saying vocal prayer is good. It's a means to an end. And what happens is that when you progress in the spiritual life, and especially when you be introduced to the prayer of contemplation, which we'll talk about in a whole other show, you pass the stage called the dark night of the senses. And this is not highfalutin mystical theology. Dark night of the senses is, is actually more common than people generally think. Quite a few devout people are at that stage and they don't know it because they don't have a spiritual director that understands this or they've never read about it. When you go through the dark night of the senses, not only does discursive meditation, point one, point two, thinking more discursively through a thought, that becomes more repugnant. A contemplative doesn't want thoughts about God, but is hungry for God himself, direct contact with God. But vocal prayers also become repugnant. You want to simplify your spiritual life as you grow. It's more unified. You're praying all the time, but you're not using many words. Life becomes a prayer. Everything you do, God's presence is so real to you that you're not going to use many words. It's, I love him. I, you know, I look at him and he looks at me. It's going to be all the time in his presence almost. So you're going to be praying more, but you're going to be using less words. It's more pure in that sense. You have the person. It's like being in love with someone. When you're in love, you just want to hold the person. So a contemplative wants to just be with God rather than just talk about him. Before I finish, I have to talk about another type of vocal prayer. I always go longer than I intend to. We're not bored. I have to talk about what is known as ejaculatory prayer or ejaculations. Those short prayers that are often of one sentence and they're often indulgence as well. Before I go on, I want to say that personally, I do not like calling them by that name. No, that's what they have traditionally been known as. I think we have to admit that the English language changes 
It's a living language. Just like the word gay, we don't use that word anymore for happy. It's so, taken on another sense. It's taken on another sense primarily. If we use that word too much today as traditional Catholics, it would be like, this is pretty weird. So I like to refer to these short little prayers as aspirational prayer or aspirations because it's the soul aspiring to God. And I highly recommend these types of prayer. And if you notice in Scripture, in the Gospels, that the prayers that our Lord answered with miracles and cures are all these little short little prayers. They're beautiful aspirations. The lepers, when they're cured, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. That's, that's beautiful. It's a simple aspiration. It says everything. You see similar prayers all throughout the New Testament. The two blind men of Jericho, O Lord, thou son of David, have mercy on us. Then you have the Canaanite woman, have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. Another leper said, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. If we just said that prayer and meant it. Another blind man said, Lord, that I might see. And then we have the publican in the parable. And all he said was, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. The woman with the internal hemorrhage didn't even articulate her prayer, but merely prayed within her heart, if I shall touch only his garment, I shall be healed. These kinds of prayers, I think, are some of the most powerful prayers that we can pray. And I firmly believe that the practice of making short aspirational prayers often during the day is one of the most sanctifying habits we could form. Sometimes we think that the more words we use, the better, that thinking that a formula will have an infallible, almost magical effect. But our Lord himself said, when you pray, speak not much as the heathens. So our Lord is not looking for grammatically perfect prayers. He wants your heart. St. Benedict in the Holy Rule says, let us be assured that it is not in many words, but in the purity of heart and tears of compunction that we are heard. For this reason, prayer ought to be short and pure. And so these little aspirational prayers, I think if we mean what we say, they're very short and very pure. They're like little arrows shot up to heaven and they go straight to our Lord's heart if we mean them. And, you know, sometimes it's very hard to set aside 25 minutes of, of prayer or a longer time that we sit down and read a, a whole prayer formula. But everyone has time to set aside two seconds and say, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, have mercy upon me. We could say that a hundred times a day, a thousand times a day, and it doesn't affect our duties because it can be said during our duties. So you can light a room by building a big bonfire in the middle. Or you can put a thousand little candles all around the room and it lights up the room. And that's what these prayers are. They light up your whole life. They're very easy. You don't have to have something in your hand, a book. You don't have to memorize much. And you can change these prayers. Don't think that you have to use the same ones every day. You could use some from the Psalms. There's different indulgence prayers from scripture here. The ones I just recite. Make up your own. Jesus, I love you. Uh, have mercy upon me. Jesus, Mary, Joseph, I love you. Save souls. All these things, very, very easy. Most sacred heart of Jesus, I love you. That was the prayer of the Desert Fathers, the monks in, in, in the ancient times. It was short little prayers, little verses of scripture, and that made him a saint, really. So I highly recommend that. It's also a good prayer uh, bridging to make you aware of God's presence throughout the day, and that will help bring a soul to the grace of contemplation. So really, the heart of prayer is that it must truly proceed from the heart. Hmm. Okay. Great. Well, thank you very much, Father, for your time. This has been the Virtual Life on the Restoration Radio Network. It was all great, Father. And we'll talk to you again next month as we continue this series. God bless you. If you have any questions for Father Bernard or feedback on this episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at spirituallife at truerestoration.org, and we'll pass along your questions or comments to Father Bernard. 
And we'd also like to take this moment to remind you that all correspondence with us is strictly confidential. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work is prayer. 